Coming up, the best divisional round in NFL history with arguably the best divisional game ever took place over the weekend in epic fashion. I'll dissect all four games and look ahead to next week's conference championship games. Can the final four come close to what we've witnessed over the last couple of days? A legendary Hockey Hall of Famer leaves us too soon. All is quiet on the NBA and college hardwood, but I'll bring you up to speed there. The players will deliver a proposal today to counter with what the owners brought 10 days ago in Major League Baseball. Will this lead to another standstill? Stand by as there's so much to delve into as I have another action-packed, fast-paced sports podcast on the way. But first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You can also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media. I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels podcast begins in five, four, three, two, one. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December. But what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I got to call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits as we're creeping towards February. Already. Can you imagine? A week from today, it's the last day of the month. February looms right behind that. 2022 is in full flight. But in the meantime, fasten your seatbelts because we're about to take off and head toward an exciting and fun-filled trip through the sports universe as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me for now 235 episodes, I welcome you guys and gals back. It is a Monday, January the 24th in the year of our Lord, 2022. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What's expected on this podcast is as follows. The hockey world lost not only just a Hall of Fame player, but a Hall of Fame person, as former Islander great Clark Gillies passed away suddenly Friday night at the age of 67. We'll go through his career as he was a part of four straight Stanley Cup winning teams in the 80s, was a rugged winger with plenty of skill, and was the ultimate team player, so I'll touch on that and everything else that's happening on the ice a little bit later on. All is pretty much quiet on the hardwood as the college circuit is pretty much status quo, and the NBA is the same, but there are a couple of injury fronts when it comes to the Chicago Bulls, so we'll touch on that and everything that's happening in the association. Down under, the Australian Open hits its second week, and there have been a couple of key players who have been ousted from the tournament, and just recently, Alexander Zverev of the men's side. 
I'll get into that and take a look at what may lie ahead as they'll crown a champion by week's end. There was a huge bout in MMA on Saturday as Francis Ngannou beats Cyril Gagne to become the undisputed heavyweight champ. So I'll even spend a couple of minutes on that. Everything that's going on in the sports universe, including my hero and zero of the week, and also with Major League Baseball, what's going to happen there later today. You know I'll have my two cents when it comes to what's going on there. But for those that have listened to this podcast throughout the NFL season, you know that I've been not pretty hard. But very hard on the shield, whether it's been the increase to 17 games in a regular season, the extra two teams added in each conference come playoff time, even putting the sixth wildcard game to Monday night, where I was not in favor of that from the very beginning. And when 2021 began, the league had dubbed this as being the best season ever. After what we watched last weekend during the wildcard round, we had only hoped that the games would just be a smidge better. This past weekend, just a little bit of an upgrade so at least we could get on the airwaves today and bandy about what had taken place over the course of the divisional weekend. Well, not only was it a smidge better, not only was it leaps and bounds better, but it was by far, historically, the greatest divisional round ever. Can you come up with four games that have literally come down to the final seconds in this particular round of the playoffs? I can't seem to think of any. And mind you, you had a scenario going into the Buffalo KC game yesterday that the three road teams had already won in this round. And obviously we'll get to it with Buffalo. They were that close to making it a clean sweep of the road teams, which had never happened in the divisional round. Actually, the closest that this happened was back in the 2008 season, which of course bled into the 2009 playoffs. That was the four games that you had in the divisional round where the Steelers were the only home team to win a game in that round. Because if you remember, earlier that same day, the Eagles beat the Giants in the old Meadowlands. And then the day prior, you had the Arizona Cardinals beat the Carolina Panthers on the road in the night game. And then earlier that day, Baltimore beating Tennessee in a one seed on the road. Doesn't that sound familiar? Where you had an opportunity to have all four teams at home be knocked out of this divisional round. Well, be that as it may, not only did the sport hit a home run this past weekend, they hit a 550-foot grand slam down three in the bottom of the ninth in a game seven. As you know, the powers that be were dancing, laughing, doing cartwheels, and I'm sure guzzling the Dom Perignon, Terramana Tequila, and all the vodka tonics that a man or woman could possibly handle because those games were theater that you cannot script. And that is the beauty of sports, my friends. What you saw over the weekend... How could it be matched? Or how could it be even surpassed? It's almost as if the conference championship games, they are going to be an act to follow that's next to impossible. But we'll touch on that later on. Let's cut right to it because, man, this is going to be the talk of every sports talk, show, podcast, you name it. And let's get right to it. I'm not going to get into the Monday night game from last week. Of course, with the dreaded extra playoff game being pushed to Monday night with the Cardinals and Rams. What is there to discuss? We know the Rams won. They had a great home crowd, which I'm sure maybe there was some umbrage taken by the LA contingent. Maybe the people that didn't show up the week before against the Niners where pretty much all the Bay Area came down to SoCal and SoFi to root their Niners onto 
a playoff berth in the NFC. And although the home crowd was great and a lot of celebrities and pomp and circumstance, we get it, but it was the Arizona Cardinals. So we could just pretty much put that in our memory bank or maybe in our misery because, as we all know, Wild Card Weekend was a disaster. So now let's go in order with what took place Saturday between the Bengals and Titans. Now early on, it looked like from the very first play that it was going to be indicative of how the Titans were going to either be tight or not play as the one seed in the AFC as Ryan Tannehill's first play, first pass of the game led to a field goal, which was intercepted by Jesse Bates. And if you heard my podcast over the weekend, the surprise one where I had a couple of Bengal fans, including my guy, Jai Shields, the podcaster, he even thought that Jesse Bates was going to be a factor defensively for the Bengals. And you saw that from the very first play. So that led to a field goal. It was 6-0 later on before the Titans actually tied the game on a three-yard scamper by Derrick Henry. Now, here is one of the several reasons why Mike Vrabel, who a lot of people will think will be the coach of the year in the NFL, how for whatever the reason, I don't know if he got into brain lock, I don't know if he was just going by the iPad instead of the eye test, but what in the hell was he thinking about going for a two-point conversion when all he needed was an extra point there to make it 7-6? And when you think about it, Of course, at that time, you're not going to look at the game on a grand scheme, big picture scenario, but that was the difference of the game. He kicks that extra point, 7-6, the game would have been 17-16. Again, you cannot map out the game as it was because who knows how that would have played out from that point, but still, why was he trying to be cute there? And he had an awful game coaching, and we'll get to some of his blunders throughout the course of this segment. So he went for two there, got stuffed, and next thing you know, it's 6-6. They tack on a field goal right before the half, 9-6. And then now, as we get into the second half, the Bengals were able to get a touchdown to extend their lead to 16-6 on the high-stepping touchdown run by Joe Mixon. Later, on the next possession right after that, the Bengals, their defense were on their heels because now the running game of the Titans started to take into play a little bit of Derrick Henry, who wasn't really a big factor in the game. Had a couple of runs, but nothing really explosive. And Deontay Foreman, for the short burst and the few carries that he got, obviously put his fingerprints in parts of the game. But right after that touchdown drive, they were able to run the ball. And then as they're deep into Bengal territory, inside the red zone, right away they got cute. Now this isn't more on Vrabel, because I understand they had however many running plays leading up into that pass play where Tannehill went to the wide receiver screen and then Mike Hilton, Johnny on the spot, was able to interfere, tip the ball, intercept it to run it back to about midfield. And Tannehill, he has to do a better job there. I get it that the play is designed to go to the wide out, but out of his peripheral vision, and I get he has a helmet on, but did he not see a white jersey streaking in his eye path? To the point where even if he pump faked and maybe tried to rush the ball on his, on his own to maybe get one or two yards, or even if he got stopped there, he just killed the drive based on that play. Now, give it up to Mike Hilton. That was a great play, great anticipation, no doubt. But when you have a guy like Tannehill, who in a big spot, you know he can't trust. And they were already trailing at that point. So instead of not pulling the trigger, tucking it and maybe running... He decided, oh, let me see if I can get it past him. And nobody's going to confuse his arm strength with Justin Herbert or even Dan Marino of quarterbacks past. But just a terrible play by Tannehill. What could you say? Now, that turnover didn't cost the 
Titans any points as the Bengals did not convert on that drive. But on the Bengals' next possession, you had the scenario where Joe Burrow gets intercepted by Amani Hooker, and that was a pick. I understand it hit the ground, but when the defensive player had possession, and even if the ball is going to scrape or even touch the ground, of course, there wasn't any hand movement. The player had the ball securely in his hands, so you can't overturn that. I know my dear friend Risa, she looked at that. It's like, that should have been a turnover. I know she watches football, and I know she's a diehard fan, but that's one that you cannot, by any means argue or even try to dispute so from there prior to that the Titans did get a field goal but then that's when Tannehill connects with A.J. Brown on that one-handed catch down the right sideline the game is tied at 16 so now all the momentum is on the side of the Titans and this is where you think that maybe the Bengals will fold here maybe the Bengals will show their youth and inexperience in this spot on the road but again Tennessee is not Kansas City, it doesn't have that type of atmosphere or even the Saints back in the days in their home field advantage there in New Orleans during that Super Bowl run back in 2009. So now here we go where Mike Vrabel and his terrible play calling coaching comes to rear its ugly head for whatever the reason in Bengal territory on a third and one instead of giving it to either Deontay Foreman or Derrick Henry He runs an RPO to where Tannehill takes the ball, tucks it, and gets stopped. And then on the next play, on fourth and two, they hand it off to Henry, and he is walking toward the line of scrimmage as if he's stepping on eggshells. And he gets thrown for a loss. So the Titans weren't able to convert there. And then, to cut right to it, on the Titans' final possession, 2.43 to go. And I understand that they're trying to Go methodically up the field. They're not trying to rush. The clock is their friend. They certainly want to get themselves in position to where they get in the field goal range, hopefully with less than 20 or even 10 seconds on the clock, and then have your kicker come in, ice the game, and then you go off and wait to see who you're going to play at home the following week. Instead, it looked like Mike Vrabel took a page out of Andy Reid's textbook when he was a coach of the Eagles in the Super Bowl 39 against the Patriots, if you recall, Down 24-14, he took forever on that final drive just to get to within three in that Super Bowl. Well, Vrabel was doing the same thing. No rush. La-da-da. I understand you're not going to run to the line of scrimmage. I get it. You're not going to be in no huddle, although they could be because it's not as if they, they were starting their drive on the Bengal, or I should say on the Titan 40. But let's go here. Let's speed it up. Well, guess what? With about... 20 seconds to go, right at midfield, third and five, Tannehill throws a pass in traffic. And like I said earlier, nobody's going to confuse his arm strength of Dan Marino. So he tries to thread a needle, tries to fit the ball in a window. What happens? The ball gets tipped, gets intercepted by the linebacker Logan Wilson. And then one play later, Joe Cool 2.0, Joe Burrow finds Jamar Chase there on the sideline in a deep out. And then... Evan McPherson comes in, who pretty much called this kick that we're going to the AFC Championship game, and that rookie has been money this year. That guy has made big kicks throughout the year, as you saw there in the final seconds in Tennessee. And the Titans, one seed, bye-bye, the paper Tigers that they are, and the Bengals, the real Tiger, 
goes on to the AFC Championship game for the first time since 1988. And if you're a Titan fan, uh, what could you say? For the 15 of you that are out there, you got to blame your coach and your quarterback. Because Vrabel, as I mentioned, those play calls, not only that, what happened there with the two-point conversion, why did he go for that, is beyond me. And then the quarterback, as we know, Ryan Tannehill's not a big-time quarterback. I get he had some success there in that run when they were one game away from the Super Bowl when they lost to Kansas City there. What was it, three years ago now? And when they beat Baltimore in that game in Baltimore where the Ravens had the one seed. But Tannehill, as you've seen time after time after time, is just made for disappointment. So a lot of blame goes to him there. And it's funny, I haven't even talked about the Bengals throughout the course of this segment. And now let me get to them. First off, I got to talk about Joe Burrow. I get it that he didn't have the touchdown or the big numbers there as far as the score sheet goes. Yes, he did throw for well over 300 yards. He was 29 of 38. He did have the one interception. But he got his ass kicked. Nine sacks. In fact, you could even say Zach Taylor, he needs to start making some adjustments here because he didn't make any adjustments during the game. Burrow was under siege. He was sacked five times in the first half, four in the second. And... He's going to get his quarterback killed. He has to keep a back there to max protect because if he thinks, and not to say that Kansas City is anywhere close to their Super Bowl defense, and I'm talking about the Super Bowl from the 60s. All right, I'm going way back talking about guys like Bobby Bell, Buck Buchanan, Curly Culp, Willie Lanier, guys of yesteryear that were stout and Hall of Famers to say the least. And the chief defense that they're going to face has some good defensive players, but not among the ilk of those aforementioned players. But Zach Taylor is going to have to make some adjustments there if he's not thinking about it already because that crowd, that home field advantage isn't anything like Tennessee's. But I'll get to that later on when it comes to that AFC Championship matchup. But Burrow, he was as cool as a cucumber. He didn't let anything bother him. And that is a sign of maturity and just watching him grow up in front of our eyes in that regard. We know his pedigree in college. We know he's won a national championship. And for him to go there where the score was tied, he didn't blink, he didn't flinch. The turnover was key because all he had to do was make one big throw. He did that. McPherson did the rest. And the Bengals move onward and upward. But give Burrow credit. He's a guy that the AFC is going to have to deal with, and in particular my division, because as we all know, me being a Steeler fan, I'm going to have to see this guy twice a year for the next decade plus. So Tennessee, bye-bye. Awful job, as I've said. And the Bengals, what could you say? A lot of grit and a lot of guts led by their quarterback, number nine. As for the nightcap there on Saturday, the Packers... They were the top story, and in particular Aaron Rodgers, if you listened to the podcast a few weeks ago as I went through my playoff storylines, to me, number one was number 12 in Green Bay. Because everything that had happened throughout the course of this year, we know we don't have to go through every little nook and cranny between what happened last January losing to the Buccaneers, and then the mystery about him not being on the team, possibly In the upcoming year, will he report to camp? Does he want to get traded? What all the 
hoopla and circumstance that went on in Green Bay that led to him reporting on time, the whole thing about him being not vaccinated, but him being immunized, which led to that one game that he had to sit out against Kansas City there in the middle of the year. And then him getting the one seed or the Packers getting the one seed. And now this game where the Niners come in and we know coming into this game, lifetime, he was 0-3 versus them in the in the playoffs, including twice at home, which was early on in his career, where, or really once at home, I should say. He lost twice in San Francisco, once in Candlestick, and then obviously two years ago in the championship game out in Santa Clara. But he did lose that one wild card game versus Colin Kaepernick in their building in four degree weather. So here it was, all set up for him, no excuses, opening drive, march down the field, A.J. Dillon, six-yard touchdown, and you're thinking, oh boy, Green Bay may be off and running, and this could be the one blowout game of the weekend. But after that, where was the Packer offense? Yes, you did see Devontae Adams, yes, you did see Aaron Jones, and I understand that they're nicked up, but you didn't see Randall Cobb that much, you didn't see Amon St. Brown, A.J. Dillon left later on with a chest injury, but... It's almost if the Packers decided to get on an early flight to start their off-season workouts and get on a cruise ship or whatever it is because they were nowhere to be found. Now, granted, you got to give the Niner defense a hell of a lot of credit. The Niner defense was stout. We all know about that front four led by Nick Bosa and, of course, Eric Armstead. And that's the one team in the league that's left in this postseason that could rush four and be just a game-wrecking force because generally a lot of teams have to blitz, they have to come off the edge or inside. Obviously, with the Niners, that is not the case. Yes, once in a while they do blitz, but they certainly don't have to. But with all that said, the Niners then, late in the first half, as they're looking to try to get the equalizing score, Jimmy G, who makes plays, but he also makes plays for the other team, he throws that interception to Adrian Amos as he was trying to find George Kittle in the end zone. And right there, you thought to yourself, that was a golden opportunity. Who knows what the Packers were going to do, considering that was right under the two-minute warning. And then, the Packers then go on a drive, 75 yards, where 55 of that was on the pass from Aaron Rodgers, or excuse me, it was actually a 75-yard play, to Aaron Jones, where he finds him on the sideline. Thankfully, the Niners were able to not only get him to tackle him in the middle of the field, but averted to go down by two touchdowns at that point, which would have been just probably insurmountable for the Niners considering how their offense had been when you look at the rest of the game. But as it was, they were able to stop Jones and then after a sack by Nick Bosa, Rodgers stops the clock. Here comes the field goal unit, Mason Crosby. And what happens? The terrible special teams, ranked last in the NFL, comes back to rear its ugly head. Block field goal, 7-0 at the half. All right, that would have been great to be up 10-0, but you figured the Packers are still in charge, even though the Niners looked like they were taking the lead or had the lead going into the locker room. So that was a huge boost for them. Now the Niners, come second half, they did get a field goal there early on as they cut the deficit to four. Pretty much a back and forth, seesaw type of game. Not much really going on offensively for both teams. Until we get right to it in the fourth quarter where deep in packet territory where it looked like the Niners, all right, they've set themselves up for a field goal, but you knew and it was the right choice by Kyle Shanahan there at the Packer 19 to go for it on fourth and one. 
They get stuffed as Elijah Mitchell tries to get that first down, but he gets stopped there. And at that point, you're thinking to yourself, what about, what was it? I think it was about 6'10 to go. That was when you felt the Packers were going to take control, that they were going to go ahead and see if they could pad on to their lead. Now, mind you, they also had kicked a field goal, so it was 10 to 3. So now the Packers get the ball. They go three and out, couldn't do anything with it. And I'm not going to put it all on Rodgers, but when you're an all-time quarterback and you're looking to try to get to another Super Bowl and win it so you can be ranked among the immortals, and chances are he's probably going to be an MVP this year. You have to do something in that spot. Move the chains. Do something. They go three and out there, and nobody said right. Nobody said that he had to get a touchdown there or at least set themselves deep in Niner territory to kick a field goal, but move the chains. Get some first downs. And again, you got to credit the Niner defense. I understand that. But they go three and out, and then here comes the special teams, like Medusa, with the snakes and popping out of their head left and right. Jordan Willis comes up the middle, blocks the punt, gets recovered right into the end zone. The game is tied at 10, and now everybody in Green Bay is thinking the sky is falling. But now the Packers still have another opportunity. They get the ball. What happens? Another three and out. Granted, they did get another sack on that drive, but Aaron Rodgers could do no good. Couldn't move the ball an inch. And again, when you're as big as he is, one of the two or three faces of the sport, you see him on the State Farm commercials, everything that has happened this offseason, all the controversy, etc. And again, MVP. He comes up short. So now the Niners get the ball. Little by little, they're moving up the field. They convert on huge third downs to George Kittle. The biggest play in the game when they're already in Packer territory. Third and seven while they're in shotgun. And a draw goes to Debo Samuel. Samuel goes right up the middle. He gets about 10 yards. Sets themselves up for a game-winning field goal. And sure enough, Robbie Gould comes in right through the uprights. And two one-seeds on the same day go bye-bye. As the Niners run out of Lambeau with a 13-10 victory. What could you say? The Niner defense was stout. Give them tremendous credit for keeping the pack out of the end zone after that first drive. As I said about Jimmy G, the guy makes plays. Now, he may scare you from time to time. And he may want to make you pull your hair out of your head. But, look at that final drive. Made those key throws. Even as the flurries were coming down. Toughness, grittiness, the Niners, this is the game that they want to play. They want to play a dirty, grind it out type of game. And the Packers, as we all know, they want to be in tuxedos, chucking the ball over the lot. Big plays here, big plays there. You saw a couple of big plays early on, including that one pass play to Aaron Jones, which could have set up a big field goal, but it didn't. And the special teams just ruined the day, as well as Aaron Rodgers not coming through in the clutch. And that's your storyline. What more can be talked about? I know the special teams coach, I'm surprised he hasn't been released by now. Because for that to happen, and that's also including the opening kickoff in the second half where it was returned to the 50, which led to their field goal. So you can't forget that. As the special teams gets an F- minus across the board. Not even just an F. F-. And with everything leading up to this game and Aaron Rodgers and what his future is going to be, and I know that in the postgame, it was too soon, too raw on whether or not 
this was going to be it for him. Although he did say he does not want to be a part of a rebuild. So that's something you got to think about. And I believe Devontae Adams is going to be a free agent. So who knows if they're going to be able to resign him as well as bring back Rodgers for another year. And some of the other players on the roster who are going to probably look for big paydays. Let's see what happens. But who knows if this is it. Or if Rodgers retires and says the hell with it. I'm done with this game. All remains to be seen. Is it his last game in Green Bay? I probably would say yes. But again, it does depend on what the GM Brian Gutenkoos does. And that's something I can't answer right now. So yes, we could try to look into the crystal ball. Oh, is he going to come back? We could say yes, no. If they're active in bringing back Devontae Adams and some of the other key players on this team, then I could see Rodgers coming back. But if they're not going to make a play for any of these guys, then of course Rodgers is going to balk. He's going to move. And that's something that he said in the postgame that he's going to talk to management to see whether or not they're going to sign these guys. And you would think that they're going to entrust in Rodgers with the information and to be transparent, to be forthright, to say, Aaron, I think this is it. We're not going to sign Devontae. We're not going to sign this guy. We're probably not going to bring the whole team back. So if this is going to be it for you, then what can we do to make this exit as seamless as possible? And that's pretty much going to be it. But this was a gut punch because the Packers, after what happened last year and then this year, was all set up for them again. If they can't win now, when will they ever? And especially if Rodgers is not going to be back. I know it's a small sample, but Jordan Love's not the answer. So uh, just questions abound and obviously a lot of intrigue off the field. So that's what you have there. That was Saturday. And even as I posted on my Instagram account, when I said, wow, Saturday was just unmatched, unrivaled, something that we haven't seen, obviously, this postseason. What could Sunday do for an encore? First game in Tampa, Rams, Buccaneers, and the Rams get out of the gate quickly with a 10-0 lead and 20-3 leads. And in that 20-3 lead, a long touchdown to Cooper Cup on the sideline on a third and 20. What was the defense doing is beyond me. To where Levante David is throwing his helmet all over the field. The Buccaneer defense is in disarray. And you kind of wonder whether or not it was not going to be in the cards for the Bucs to try to defend their Super Bowl championship last year with their poor performance in the first half. And it actually could have been worse if it wasn't for Cam Akers fumbling there right toward the end of the first half as he's in the shadow of the goal line. And I understand that was a tough call. But it was a fumble. It was very close. You could go either way with it, but Akers did fumble the ball, and that probably would have punctuated the 27-3 score at that point, and who knows what the psyche of the Buccaneers would have been going into the second half. But as it was, the Rams did tack on another touchdown and make it 27-3 halfway through the third quarter, and you're thinking to yourself, well, unless there's going to be some Brady magic, all right, the NFL does owe us a bad game, and if there's going to be one bad game, let this one be it because we have a nightcap which could be one for the ages. And huh, obviously we'll get to that in a minute. But even with all that, 27-3, and we knew that the game was far from over, but then here it comes. But then the Bucks they finally get a break that they needed. Down by 24 points. Cooper Cup fumbles the ball. And then later was converted by Leonard Fournette who scored a touchdown there to make it 27-10. So it breathed a little life not only into the Buccaneers but also into the building with their fan base. And then after an exchange of possessions where there were fumbles, loss on downs by Tampa Bay, they get a shot where Brady finds Mike Evans down the sideline for a 55-yard touchdown. 
to make it 27-20. Jalen Ramsey gets beat on the play. Looks like he has his head on a swivel. But at 27-20, as the time is starting to click off there for the Buccaneers and it's not their friend, what happens? Cam Akers, another fumble deep in their own territory, recovered by the Buccaneers. And now you're thinking, oh, geez, this is set up for Brady to not only come back and tie the game, but even win the game. So therefore, you had a chance where on a fourth and one, fast forward at the nine-yard line, hand the ball off to Fournette, he goes off tackle, and then right into the end zone, the game is tied, 27 up, with about 42 seconds left, and all you could think is that Brady's never going to lose. Here it is. The Rams were doing everything it took to give the game back to the Buccaneers to say, we want you to defend your Super Bowl crown. We want you to go on and host a home game against the San Francisco 49ers. We want Tampa Bay to go back to the Super Bowl. And now it was up to Matthew Stafford. The reason why he was brought there were for moments like this. And by far, this was the biggest moment. Now granted, he wasn't trailing. It wasn't as if it was 27-26. It wasn't as if it was 27-24 where maybe he'd be a little bit tight or he would squeeze that football a little bit. But still, pressure spot for him. He had to deliver a 20-yard pass to the left sideline there right before midfield and then the 44-yard pass as the Tampa defense saw earlier again. Cooper Cup gets by the secondary down into the red zone. What can you say? Stafford delivers. Matthew Gay kicks the game-winning field goal as the clock expires. And the Rams had to sweat, had to scratch and claw. But they get their victory at the end. They win 30-27. to And now you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute. How can these three playoff games all go down to the final seconds ending in field goals? What can we even think? Well, the final game of the weekend brings us. But before we get to that, when we look at the Rams, Stafford, he played well here. You can't knock him. Now, mind you, they had a big enough lead that the Rams squandered. So he had some wiggle room. And I know the cup fumble there, which led to the touchdown at 27-10, and then the Acres fumble, that's not his fault. So he can't kill him for that. But he came through when he absolutely had to there, tied at 27 with those two throws to cup as time was ticking off the clock there at Raymond James and give him credit. Now, he's got some more pressure he's going to have to deal with, which I'll discuss in a few minutes, but give it up for Stafford. He delivered, came through in a big way. As for the Buccaneers, only thing I could say is this. The Buck D and Todd Bowles, the defense coordinator, they're not going to sleep for the rest of this month. Because of Cooper Cup, because of that touchdown there in the first half to make it 17-3, and then the inexplicable Cup getting past the secondary there for the game-winning field goal. That was inexcusable. Where does this leave Tom Brady? Is this it? He said he's going to take it day by day. Similar to Aaron Rodgers in that situation... I don't know. Remember, the Buccaneers brought back a lot of these players on one-year deals. And this is an older team. And we saw the injuries mount throughout the latter half of the season. Whether it was Chris Godwin, even Mike Evans, and I understand he played in this game and he played here at the latter part of the season, but 
The team isn't getting any younger. And these guys are probably going to want to get paid. Do they want to rally the troops for one last go around here? I don't know if Brady's going to want to do that. Maybe Brady has to look in the mirror and say it's time. Yes, he could talk about TB12 and pliability and avocado smoothies and all that till he's blue in the face, but there's going to come a point where he should just go out on top. And granted, he didn't come away with a Super Bowl victory, but please, he already has seven of them. So I can't gauge or even monitor how that's going to unfold. We're going to have to wait and see. Maybe a lot of it has to do with the roster, similar to Rogers' case, but this could be it for Brady. But again, I can't say definitively, or I could, I'm not going to be that guy that you'll see on some of these talking head shows that, oh, this is it for Brady, or oh, this is it for Rogers. I know, I this. No, you don't. You do not. Unless you have close ties with a source or somebody that's in the Rogers or Brady camp, then okay, then I'll take your word for it. But we don't want to hear any of your stupid hot takes, whomever that may be out there, just for the sake of some clickbait material. You're not going to get it from me. If I knew, trust me, I would say, oh, this is it. But we don't know. I'll just leave that there. And then lastly, let's get to this game last night because just when you thought that the Shield couldn't outdo itself with the first three games, and mind you, this was definitely the game of the weekend because we can look at all four games being great, but this was a rematch of the AFC Championship game last year. The Bills were coming in hot based on what they did to New England the week before. Same for Kansas City and them dismantling Pittsburgh. But as we look at this game, I understand we could go to the final few minutes of this game, but the word classic gets thrown around by so many people. And again, they want to have the story first or they want to have the clickbait material. And there are times where when they use the word classic, it's like, really? This was the most ugliest game or it was a sloppy game? Yes, it was a dramatic ending or good final five minutes of the game, but this was not a classic by any means. There have been many games where people overrate and overhype that word because that's what they want to put out in the stratosphere. And where most times than often, they're wrong. But this game here is not just an instant classic, but this will be forever known as probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest playoff game ever. And why I say that is because of this. The game was as perfect of a game as you could ever witness because there were only four penalties in the game. Three by Buffalo, one by Kansas City. So there was not much margin for error when it comes to sloppy play or dumb penalties or a bonehead call that was warranted because of an unsportsmanlike conduct or anything like that. No, this game was as crisp of a football game as you could possibly ever watch. That's number one. Number two, there were no turnovers in the game. Zero. So when you have a game with no turnovers and four penalties... This is bound to be an epic game. Then the quarterback play, you cannot get anything close to top-notch A-plus quality play than what you saw last night between Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes. You can't. That was quarterback 101, 202, and probably whatever the highest class that you could possibly take because you saw ability, you saw accuracy, you saw escapability, you saw guttiness. Uh, you, you can't even quantify how great these quarterbacks played yesterday. That's how great they were. 
Of course, the final few minutes, the 25 points in the final, whatever it was, 152. Josh Allen with the heroics there on 4th and 13, finding Gabriel Davis. Unbelievable. And then the two-point conversion, what a catch there by Stephon Diggs, who did nothing in the game. I get it. Maybe they were double-teaming Diggs. That's why Gabriel Davis had the game of his life. Eight catches, 201 yards, and four touchdowns, the most ever by a wide receiver in a playoff game. And then to have, right after that, with a minute two to go, and even with all three of the timeouts, and you're thinking, oh, geez, all right, let's see what happens here. Boom, right up the sideline, you get Tyreek Hill turning on the Jets to where he scores, what is it, a 67-yard touchdown. And now pardon me for saying this, but you went from, oh, my God, to Josh Allen's heroic, so holy shit, by Patrick Mahomes. So then, even with that much time left on the clock, now I get my—I guess I got my times mixed up, so let me just make sure that I got this correct. From 152 on, at the end of this game, where you had the Bills score the touchdown and the two-point conversion to make it 29-26, Hill's touchdown was 64 yards as I look, not 67. So that was with a minute and two seconds to go. Buffalo had, I believe, one timeout left. So therefore, Allen goes down the field. He finds Gabriel Davis in the seam with 13 seconds left. And which was, like I said, a classic, no matter how you slice it, dice it, unbelievable football game. Here was the one blatant era of the game that will be forever remembered in playoff lore and especially with the Bills fans and Bills Mafia and everybody in Western New York at roots for this team with 13 seconds left and even with Kansas City having all three of their timeouts but even if they had no timeouts what were you doing kicking off the ball into the end zone for a touchback and Tony Romo who again people know I'm not a fan of especially when it comes to his broadcasting and I thought about it right beforehand when they're lining up for the kick and I'm looking at the clock and the timeouts, I said, they got to make them earn this. And I'm not talking about squib kicks either because for those who want to come on and talk about squib kicks, no, that could be a disaster too. So if you squib it to the point where they get the ball to 20 and they rush the ball or they return the ball up until about, let's say the 30 or 35 yard line, you're still giving them a short field to work with to get themselves up in field goal range. Kick the ball to the five, all right, so even if they get to the 25 because of your coverage, they still have to go, in essence, at least 40 yards to get themselves in field goal range. What do they do? All right, so they kick the ball to the 25. So you're going to say, well, Jay Reels, if they got the ball to 25, you kick the ball in place so the clock could start ticking. If the ball is in the air and it comes down into the arms of the returner and the clock starts ticking, the returner has to come out with the ball. Especially if it's in the player field. So if it's at the 1 or at the 5 or at the 10. But let's say if it's even at the 7-yard line, he has to run it out. Four or five seconds is going to come off the clock. And I understand to have three timeouts. And it still may take two plays. Understood. But the Chiefs didn't have to worry about the clock at that point. They just had to worry about making plays. And five seconds are precious in the National Football League. So for those that want to squib it, uh uh-uh. And for those who want to kick in the end zone, what are you thinking? Kick that ball to the five. And I get it that the special teams are exhausted. Both teams are pretty much at their physical strengths end. But as I like to say, let them 
Earn it. Even if they kick it back for a touchdown. And I understand people are going to say, oh my God, why'd you kick it off? Why'd you kick it to them so they can return it back? Let them earn it. It's the same thing in baseball. When there's a 4-2 lead in the bottom of the ninth inning and your closer comes in, the count is 2-0, throw a fastball down the middle. If he hits it out of the ballpark, it's still a one-run game. So what? Let him earn it. Don't walk that guy so you can get the tying run to the plate. Same situation here. Let them earn it. They blew it. Next thing you know, you get a couple of plays, especially the big play with Kelsey up the seam. Harrison Bucker comes in, kicks the field goal. And then now, as we get to the overtime, you knew that whomever was going to win the coin toss was probably going to go down the field and win the game because the defenses were spent. And all I can say is this. When Kansas City won the coin toss, right away I thought about the AFC Championship game three years ago when New England was in their building and the chief defense was gassed. And you knew as Brady was pitching and chucking down the field, you just knew he was going to get in the end zone. I felt the same way. I thought the Chiefs were going to do the same thing. And sure enough, that's what happened. Pass here, pass there. Fade into the end zone for Travis Kelsey. Game set match. And I even tweeted at the very start of overtime, I said, you may not even see Josh Allen get the ball one last time and that's a shame. But it's not a shame because of the overtime rule and I'll get to that in a second. It's a shame because you know that if he did have an opportunity, he probably would have done the same thing Mahomes did and the game would have went on. But those are the rules, people. You could be in uproar and outrageous to think that, oh, Josh Allen deserved to get the ball there. Oh, they got to change these overtime rules. No. Why can't the Bills make a stop? Or when the ball was deep in their territory, why couldn't they say, guys, we got to hold them to, down to a field goal. It doesn't matter what we do. Let's clamp down. Let's take a gigantic, collective, big, giant breath, and that's it. They didn't do that. And that's why the game was over. So, for those out there that want to change the overtime rule or think that, oh, it wasn't fair, they said, no, it was fair. If they kick the field goal, then guess what? The Bills had an opportunity to win the game or tie the game at that point. But they didn't do it. The rules are fair. The rules are simple. I don't care what people say. That's it. Game over. And Kansas City, they continue to march on and host the AFC Championship game next week against the Bengals. Again, as I talked about last week with the storylines, we talked about Aaron Rodgers, obviously Matt Stafford, and I said that the AFC was wide open, or is it? Now, Kansas City was this close from losing that game, but I always thought that it was going to be Mahomes or Bust to make it to SoFi for Super Bowl 56. And they proved me right. Their grit, heart, and talent won the day. What more can you say? And as for Buffalo, Josh Allen was heroic. Gabriel Davis was historic, as I mentioned before. And if you thought the Packer loss was a gut punch, what do you think this Bills loss was for all the Bills fans out there? That was a nut punch. Because, man, this is one that's going to stick with you for life. That's all there is to it. You're going to think about that kickoff for 13 seconds to go for the rest of your life. And the Bills could win the next three Super Bowls. But they're going to think of what if they were able to win that game and they would have hosted the AFC Championship game at home. That's how close they were to making it to have that game in their building. The NFL, I, I can only imagine what the ratings were. 
NFL is king when it comes to this stuff. There is no other TV show out there that can match it. None. And before people can get crazy, and I talked about this with my wife yesterday, because Game of Thrones, you can name any TV show that's out there. It's never going to top the NFL. So if the San Francisco-Dallas game last week, which had a very intriguing finish, but was far from anything close to what we saw this weekend for these four games in the divisional round, the ratings for that game were 41 million. 41 million. The Super Bowl does about 110 million on a good year. 41 million. What do you think that Bills Chief game did last night in primetime? That has to be easily 50 million people watch that game. So almost half or less than half of what people would watch the Super Bowl watch that game. And I get it that a lot of these shows are streamed and on network TV and on all these platforms. But there isn't anything that CBS, NBC, or ABC could produce besides football that could come anywhere close to that. No American Idol, no Voice, none of these shows. Survivor, Big Brother, none of these shows can match that. I don't want to hear it. And this is why the NFL is king. And everybody else has to bow down. Just an unbelievable weekend of football. And the only thing I could come close as I wrap this up, I got a couple other NFL things to discuss before I move on to other things. And this is the bulk of the show, people. I mean, there's no way that we could talk about NBA and we could talk about what's going on with baseball, but this is the show. What happened here over this weekend. But as we look back on the great divisional games, and we could talk about the great playoff games of all time, now, of course, this isn't going to match a Super Bowl. It's not going to match Super Bowl 42 or what happened there with the helmet catch or even the Santonio catch in the back of the end zone or some of the other great Super Bowl games of yesteryear. It's not going to match that because that's a Super Bowl. That's for a championship. Division around, the one game that comes to mind, of course, the great divisional game in 1981, really in 82, I believe it was January 2nd between San Diego and Miami. That was when the Chargers jumped out to a 24-0 lead and then you had the, the hook and lateral with... Tony Nathan there and Don Strock to make it 24 up at the half, I believe it was, at that point of the game. And that was the Kellen Winslow game, him blocking field goals and had the 13 catches for however many yards and had to be carried off the field because of heat exhaustion. I mean, that's one game that, ugh, that's forever etched in NFL history. But this one ranks right up there, if not maybe even surpasses that because of everything I mentioned at the top, talking about how crisp the game was, no turnovers, the quarterback play, how stellar it was. And again, you got to look at that one special teams play with 13 seconds to go as the key. Because who would ever think in a million years, even with a three-point lead at 13 seconds, that you'd still lose the game. And that was an enormous play, which contributed to the Chiefs going down the field, kicking the field goal, and then going ahead to win in overtime. So that, that definitely ranks up as one of the great playoff games of all time. I mean, it's all there is to it. Division around, absolutely. Even championship games. That is a classic that will be remembered forever. And now as we look ahead to next weekend, we can only hope that it comes close to what we saw this weekend. Now, I will say this. San Francisco, Tampa, I get it. The Brady-Garoppolo matchup would have been juicy More so in New England than the rest of the country because that is an overrated narrative that thank God we don't have to even deal with this week because everybody would focus and zero in on that. And again, this is for the people that want to just dredge up history with the Patriots and Belichick and Kraft and what happened and what went wrong there. 
I'm glad that we don't see that. To me, this is by far the more fascinating matchup for these three reasons. One, Matthew Stafford again, he's going to have to deliver, but now in his own building. Whereas if he had to go to Lambeau in 10 degree weather with a windshield below zero, yes, you would still expect him to do his best to come through, but if he didn't, you could say, ah, all right, Matthew Stafford, you still have a black mark next to your name, but you did win the big game in Tampa. You did dethrone Brady and the Super Bowl champs. So you know what? Not to say that that game would have been house money for Stafford because he was still brought in to take them to the promised land. But you know what? You could give him a break there. Now the game is in your building against your heated rivals. If you came through and delivered in Tampa, you have to deliver at home. Which leads to number two, with all the Niner contingent that came down to SoFi three weeks ago for the end of the regular season to watch their team beat the Rams to make it into the postseason when they were down 17-0 in the game to come back and win. Are the Ram fans going to do their best to get to that building the way they did Monday night against Arizona to cheer their team on? Or is there going to be just an outright invasion of the Niner faithful to just jam themselves in that building to overtake the Ram fan for those 60 minutes or plus come 6.30 this coming Sunday night. Which would be a disgrace if that's the case. So whatever Ram fans that need to show up, and I'm not talking about the celebrities, but the Ram faithful going back to the 70s, going back to Vince Ferragamo, Pat Hayden, Wendell Tyler, Lawrence McCutcheon, etc., I want to see those guys in that building come Sunday. And then the third thing is, Sean McVay has to get over this hex. He has lost six straight times to this team. And this is a Niner team, as we detailed already. Gutty, gritty, wants to play ugly, wants to play dirty, and they're here for 60 minutes. Are the Rams going to match that come Sunday? To me, that is just beyond fascinating. That San Francisco, Tampa, the only juice you would have gotten out was Brady and Garoppolo. Big whoop. And wow, Brady's team growing up as a kid was the Niners because of Joe Montana. Okay, whoop-de-doo. So I find that game just intriguing on so many levels. Whereas in the AFC Championship game, if I was Jai, Risa, and Brian, my three dedicated diehard Bengal fans... I would have preferred to play Buffalo for this reason only. The game would have been in Buffalo. And I understand Bill's Mafia, it would have it would be a frenzy. And who knows what kind of hornet's nest that the Bengals would be going into. But here's the thing. As well as Josh Allen has played, and if they would have pulled out that victory in Arrowhead, there still would have been a lot of pressure on that team to get to that next level. And granted, the game's at home. Understood. And a bigger and better fan base than the Titan one. But there's always going to be that moment that if the Bengals had the lead, would they play tight? Would the fans feel tight? And you would be able to get a sense of that in the building if you're a player on that sideline, a coach, etc. But you're not going to have that because now Cincinnati has to go to Kansas City and Kansas City has been down this road several times. Not only that, but they played each other late in the regular season as we all know where the Bengals did win on a last second field goal by Evan McPherson, 34-31. So they know what they're up against. They know what they're dealing with. 
They know about Joe Burrow. They know Jamar Chase. So they're not going to see anything that's out of the ordinary. So if I'm a Bengal fan, I'd be a little bit worried about that. Now granted, that's not to say Buffalo would have been a slouch or they would have been a piece of cake to get to a Super Bowl. No, 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 not the case. But for all those little intangibles that I mentioned about Buffalo, you're not going to see that with Kansas City. And even if Kansas City stumbles out of the gate, we know that they just turn on the Jets, especially in their building, and they can just take off. We saw that against Tennessee in the championship game a few years back. We saw that against Houston, 24-0, where they came bouncing back. We've seen it. And even last year against Buffalo, if you remember, in the championship game, they were down 9-0 in the first quarter. And then they just blitzed Buffalo out of the building. So even if the Bengals get off to a hot start, they could be 14-0, 17-7, 21-9 at the half. That game is far from over. So with that said, listen, I'm pulling for the Bengals hard. I already have Mahomes fatigue. I've had Brady fatigue. So now it's going to be Mahomes fatigue because all you see, State Farm, the commercials, and I have nothing against Mahomes. The guy is an otherworldly talent. He is a perennial MVP. Not that he's going to be this year, but he's got that type of ability. We've seen him do it before. Understood. And with the offensive personnel they have, they're always in games. But enough. I'm tired. I'm rooting for the Bengals super hard. But I got news for you. The Chiefs are going to win this game. And I'm not saying that definitively, oh yeah, the Chiefs are going to win with my chest out. I just think the Chiefs, they had their scare. They dodged their missile. And not, it's not to say this game is going to be a cupcake. It's not going to be a cakewalk by any stretch. But I have to say, the experience, playing in that building, the fan base, etc. I think it's just going to be a little bit too much for the Bengals. This would be an upset. And I don't want to look at the regular season game either. That was in Cincinnati. Not only that, the Chiefs were due to lose. Remember, they won, I believe, eight straight leading up to that game. So they were due to lose. The Chiefs, they know what they're up against. And the Bengals do too. But this is for a trip to the Super Bowl where it may be too big. Maybe not for the quarterback, but for the coach, their defense, and maybe even some of their young players on offense, their skilled players, Jamar Chase, T. Higgs, etc., where this spotlight may be a little bit too big for them. I like the Chiefs 34, Bengals 24. And in a nightcap, the Rams have to win this game. I'm sure this is the last opponent that they wanted to see. I bet that they are relishing the fact that the game is at home. And to think, they don't even have to leave Southern California the rest of the way, especially if they win this game. Because as we all know, the Super Bowl is in that building on February 13th. This is a tough one to dissect. It's tough to beat a team three times in one year and to think this team is, the Niners that is, has beaten them six straight times going back to 2018. Sean McVay versus Kyle Shanahan. This is, to me, it's a coin toss. I can see the Rams gunning out fast and furious, but then the Niners, they just, they're like Freddy Krueger. You can't kill them. Would I be shocked if the Niners win this game? Absolutely not. I picked the Rams to go and win the Super Bowl in my NFL preview back in early September. So I can't change my tune now. Buffalo was my AFC representative, so they're gone. I'm going to say Rams 28, Niners 27. And that's given the Niners a lot of credit offensively because as we've seen, 
They scored 23 against Dallas, and I get it was in Green Bay, the cold, the slop, whatever. I mean, it wasn't too sloppy, but they didn't play well offensively there. But they made plays when they had to. And maybe giving them 27 points is a little bit too much, but I could see a turnover here. Maybe a Stafford pick six, who knows? But I'm going to say the Rams eke one out 28-27. And you have Rams-Chiefs as your Super Bowl matchup. And I got news for you. When we look at these Final Four teams, I think the best of the bunch will be LA and Kansas City. They'll think back to that Monday night game at the Coliseum a few years ago. What was it? 54-51, whatever that final score was. It will be, and that was with Jared Goff, not, of course, Matthew Stafford. A lot of people will harken back to that game. I think it will be sexier in that regard. I don't know about San Francisco, Kansas City again. Do we really need to see another KC, San Francisco Super Bowl? We saw it two years ago. We know what happened. With Garoppolo and the Niner defense, yes. Could there be a revenge factor if that's the case? Absolutely. And then who knows, with the game being out in the West Coast, you figure all the Niner fans will probably flock back down again and overrun that building where you would have a few of the Chief contingent come out from Kansas City and certainly probably wouldn't overpower the building the way the Niner fan will, but I don't want to see Kansas City, San Francisco. But if you had to rank them, I think those would be your top two. And then after that, Probably Rams, Cincinnati, or San Francisco, Cincinnati, you take your pick. I will say this, NBC, it doesn't matter. The rating's going to be through the roof, but I know privately they're whispering and hoping for Kansas City to go back to the Super Bowl. Because the Bengals, they're a team that if you're an NFL fan, you know, but if you're a casual fan, do you really know who Joe Burrow is? Do you know who Jamar Chase is? Do you even know who the head coach is? No. Whereas with the Chiefs, obviously, you know who the cast of characters are. So even though Cincinnati and the LA Rams will be good, and Cincinnati-San Francisco, that will be good from this regard. They played in the regular season in a game that went into overtime. And then not only that, but of course, you'll think back to 1981 and 1988 when they both played in the Super Bowl in that decade. I'm sure for the Bengal fan that if they do win, and they're the first game up on Sunday... If they do beat the Chiefs, I'm sure the last team they want to see is the Niners. They don't want to see them. And I'm sure they know that number 16 is not going to be on the center. You're not going to see Jerry Rice out in the flat. You're not going to see any of those cast of characters, thank God. But you do not want to see San Francisco because you figure that we lost to them already. We don't want to lose to them again. And maybe there's some probably in the region of Ohio that would think, no, we want to get that Super Bowl. Let's play San Francisco. Let's beat them. Who knows? But I would think... They would probably want to play the Rams more so than the San Francisco 49ers. Although if they do play the Rams, again, you're going to have a lot of Ram fans in that building. So that's going to be a home game for them. And even if it is the Chiefs, Chiefs and Rams, that's going to be a home game for the Rams. And so be it. Could you imagine if it is LA and KC? This will be the second year in a row that KC will be back to the Super Bowl three overall where they would have to play in a Super Bowl where the Home team will be in their stadium. Because if you remember last year, Tampa was in their stadium when they won their Super Bowl. So they'd have to contend with that. Man, you knew this podcast was going to be all NFL people as we're over an hour into this. Let me just quickly go into some news and notes throughout the league before I go to other things. And trust me, the other stuff, I understand a lot of people aren't going to really sink their teeth into, so I'll breeze through that. But the Raiders, they fired their GM, Mike Mayock, after three years. Why he did that? I guess maybe they want to start anew, which could mean that the coach 
Rich Basaccia could be on his way out, which would be a shame. But who knows? Mark Davis, we don't know what's going on between his ears or what's in his heart. So he may be looking at the Jim Harbaugh Express to try to bring him out to the desert to get their team back on track and hopefully bring in the personnel and get themselves in a position where they'll be successful over the course of the next decade or half decade plus. We'll see. The Giants also hired a GM, former Bill executive Joe Schoen. I know the reports about him wanting to interview the offensive and defensive coordinator of the Bills as early as this past weekend. Well, now he has plenty of time since the Bills are out to see whether or not you have Leslie Frazier or Brian Dable to be the next guy to run or coach the football Giants. So we'll see if one of those two guys get plucked from the coaching tree of Sean McDermott and will become a part of the local scene here in New York, pretty much right down the state from western New York here to the tri-state area. The Ravens, in an unexpected move, fired their defensive coordinator, Wink Martindale. And to me, I always thought he was overrated. I understand that he got the name or the nickname from the old game show host, Wink Martindale. That had to be it because, please, uh, this was a guy that I understand the Ravens have always had a good defense. But to me, it was always a little bit overhyped depending on who you were on that side of the ball. Even dating back to Rex Ryan, who in his own right was a very good defensive coordinator. But because it's the Ravens and when you think of them, you think of just physical, tooth and nail, tough rugged style defenses but as we all know that defense has not been the same although they do have some players there but Martindale I guess to a surprise for many was let go obviously I'm not going to lose any sleep over that who they're going to replace with is beyond me and then lastly the Steelers speaking of defensive coordinators Keith Butler retired at that position where it looked like that was going to be the case a lot of the rumors in the offseason was not only that, but also the GM, Kevin Colbert, probably after the draft, may look to step down as the longtime executive for the Steelers. So that's for down the road. But for Butler, who knows what they're going to do? Are they going to upgrade and maybe promote the linebackers coach to the defensive coordinator spot, which they did when Dick LeBeau left and they brought Butler and promoted him from linebackers coach to the defensive coordinator position remains to be seen. That's going to be key for Tomlin because just like they had to do last year with Randy Fickner to Matt Canada, and we know that was a disaster, he can't do the same with this defense. We know it's a young defense, especially when you look at T.J. Watt, Minka Fitzpatrick, Cam Sutton, uh, Terrell Edmonds. I know Cam Hayward's getting up there in age, and Stephon Seward has been hurt here, seems uh, year after year. But they have to get this right in order for them to try to get back to any sort of semblance in the AFC North. And as we know, they're going to need a quarterback, which is gigantic. So that's what we got there with football people. Of course, that's going to take up a lot of this podcast. But as we segue here to the other sports, and let me just cut right to it. The NBA right now, with the way it is, I know the Bulls have suffered a couple of key injuries here. One with Lonzo Ball out six to eight weeks after meniscus surgery on his left knee where you also had Alex Caruso the former Laker on that play by Grayson Allen that flagrant which I believe he got a one game suspension for he's out six to eight weeks with a fractured wrist so no pun included or intended two bad breaks for the Bulls there as they continue to play well in the uh, 
Eastern Conference, and as we go through the standings a bit, everything's pretty much status quo. I know the Heat have now overtaken the Bulls and Nets, albeit by a game, in the standings. They're a half game ahead of the Brooklyn Nets right now. The Heat, where they beat the Lakers yesterday down in Miami, and then the Lakers will actually be in Brooklyn tomorrow. So you have the Heat currently a half game ahead, tied in the loss with the Nets and the Bulls at 17 losses, but currently in first place where the Bulls are in third place at 28 and 17. Brooklyn sandwiched in between at 29 and 17. And then you still have the Bucks just a game back, but two in the loss. The Cavs, I know you had Embiid score 50 points in 27 minutes a few nights ago. So that was, I mean, listen, when you score that much in that many minutes, I don't know if that's more on Embiid, which it probably is, or the opponent that he played, which was Orlando. And we know Orlando is one of the dregs, not only in the Eastern Conference, but pretty much the whole league. So you have that to deal with. Uh, Then out West, it's pretty much same deal there. Phoenix, Golden State. The Lakers are now still in the eighth spot with the Clippers, as we talked about last week. So with the association, pretty much everything is status quo. As far as the college game, same there. Gonzaga's still your number one seed, followed by Auburn, Alabama, Purdue, and Baylor. Maybe you'll have a couple of teams flip-flop, but there were no major upsets. I know Duke is on the outside of the top five at six, followed by Kansas, Wisconsin, UCLA, and Houston. So those are your top ten. And as you would think, March Madness is still, off the top of my head, what, six, seven weeks away? But the tournament should be wide open. I know you're probably going to have your usual suspects there at the end, which would be up along the top. You figure Baylor's going to be there. You would think Gonzaga, maybe Duke, Kansas. I know Kansas, they usually have their early exits, second round or maybe into the Sweet 16. Remains to be seen, but you know we'll continue to monitor this as uh, college basketball season goes along. In the NHL, just a sad and tragic loss on Friday where we had One of the great Islander players of all time. I understand he's not in the echelon when it comes to Mike Bossy, Dennis Potvin, Brian Trottier. When you look at those three players, those are arguably the top three players and not in any order in Islander history. You want to throw Billy Smith. I know he's a goaltender, but we know how much Billy Smith meant to that team in the early 80s, winning four straight cups and 19 straight playoff series in a row. But to have Clark Gillies, who was the captain before Dennis Potvin, And pretty much, if you want to say he wasn't the heart and soul, he was certainly the blood and guts of the team. As he was the fourth overall pick back in 1974. The nickname Jethro always stuck with him, going back to the old TV show from Beverly Hillbillies. We knew the type of player he was. He was the power forward before the power forward. And granted, he was a guy that didn't have over 100 penalty minutes in his career, but he fought... When he needed to fight. So he had those classic battles in the late 70s, early 80s. Whether it was with the Flyers, Dave Schultz. The classic beatdown of Dave Hoyda when he ran Mike Bossy in the corner. Which led to a bench-clearing brawl. Those epic bouts with Terry O'Reilly up in Boston. In their playoff series in the early 80s. And a lot of those matchups. Of course, he had a couple of big fights there with the Rangers. Including the KO of Ed Hospital to where he broke his jaw. But we all know how Clark Gillies, he was very skilled, scored a bunch of big goals. In fact, on that final drive for five, as the Islanders were going for that fifth straight Stanley Cup to match the Montreal Canadiens of the 1950s, in that game two, he scored a hat trick after losing game one 
1-0 to Kevin McClellan's goal in the third period out of the corner. And for those who don't know, I interviewed Kevin McClellan a couple of years back. So if you want to go deep in the archives, we actually talked about that game and that goal. Just a little shameless plug there. But Gillies in that game too, 6-1. He did have the hat trick. And even in game three, when the Islanders at 1-1, Gillies scored a power play goal to make it 2-1 in that game three up in Edmonton. And then was the goal that turned the whole series around where Mark Messier deked Gordonin, the defenseman, out of his skates and scored the goal to make it 2-2. And then at that point on, Edmonton just took over the whole series and they won in five to get their first Stanley Cup to avenge the three-game, excuse me, the four-game sweep of the year before when the Islanders won their fourth straight Stanley Cup. But with all that being said, and a little Islander history lesson, but Clark Gillies was in the middle of that, as I've detailed. And not only that, but he was a Hockey Hall of Fame player inducted in 2002, and then on top of that was a Hall of Fame person based on everything you've read over the last few days. Always had a big smile, a gentle teddy bear, just a personality that was symbolic of that Islander team back then and even bigger and more so as a person after it. Not knowing the details of his death, but he passed away suddenly and tragically Friday night at the age of 67. Thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to his family, the whole Islander family, just a, uh, what more can you say? Just a terrible loss. And with the league overall, I know that they are going to use that time off, as I've said over the last few weeks, where they're going to use that Olympic break, which would have been for the players, but they're going to make up a lot of games that they lost due to COVID. And the good thing is that I did see the Islanders and a lot of the games that they're going to make up, especially with the teams that are north of the border. And they're also going to make up some games along the way in the middle, latter part of March. So it looks like the league right now, fingers crossed, And holding their collective breaths, knowing that these games hopefully go without any interruption. They were able to get past the Omicron variant and not to say that it's out there and it's over and done with, but you would think that with cases pretty much plateauing and with recent games not being postponed or having to be rescheduled, maybe the NHL could come out of the woods here and get their season on track to where they're able to make up a lot of these games, especially as we get into the month of February. And that, obviously, we'll have to wait and see. But as we look, everything is pretty much, again, status quo. The one team that's actually made some moves here are the Colorado Avalanche. We know Nashville, I believe, as of last week, they were in first place, but the Avalanche have now won six in a row, so they're now four points ahead of the Blues and the Predators out in the Central there in the Western Conference. But everything else pretty much staying the same. I know the Islanders have played a little bit well here. They've actually put themselves in a position where they've won seven of their last ten, but they're still way back in the standings, not only in the Metropolitan, but of course overall when we're looking at the playoffs. But again, they still have a ton of games in hand with a lot of these teams. I mean, think about this. The Capitals, just in their own division, the Capitals and Rangers have played 42 games. The Islanders have played 34. So even if they win five of those eight games, that's 10 points. And 10 points, it does get you to, when we look at it right now, 44 points, which is still a zillion points behind the Rangers and company. But who knows? Let's see what the Islanders could do. But they they have a big hole they need to dig themselves out of, and it may be 
too little too late for them. But that's pretty much what you have with the NHL. I had to mention Gillies. I know I could have saved him for Hero of the Week, but because he was an Islander fan and near and dear to my heart, but not only that, the other thing too is that I didn't know that he was actually signed by the Houston Astros at 16 and could have been a baseball player. So I didn't even know that coming in. You think that that's something I would have known considering I followed the Islanders history and I watched Gillies pretty much in the half part of his, the back nine of his NHL career, but he actually could have played baseball as a catcher first baseman in that organization. But he did miss hockey. He did go back and was actually drafted in 74. And that's when he was the fourth overall pick by the Islanders that year. So that's what you have with the NHL. As we move on with baseball real quick, the players and owners will meet today as the players will counter-propose to what the owners did about 10 days ago. And as of right this second, I don't know what that is. I'm sure as I'm recording this, they're in a room somewhere locked up trying to get this figured out. But who knows? I'm sure the players are going to probably put a lot of things on the table where the owners are going to dislike. And who knows if that's going to ratchet up the tension, the friction between both sides. So I can't really say what it's going to be. Maybe the owners, I'm sure they're going to balk at a few things there, but maybe there'll be some semblance of a deal that is in the works as opposed to them just pushing the PowerPoint off the table and telling the Players Association, screw you, we'll meet when we say we're going to meet. If you're a baseball fan, and especially if you're Major League Baseball, that's the last thing you want. You don't want it to get to the point where the owners are laughing under their breath and then the players just close their laptop and walk out of the room. And that's not to say it has to be the complete opposite. That's not to say that, oh, sure, great, fine, yes, we're making headway. That would be fantastic. And if I had to predict that, I would say that wouldn't be the case. But I would hope that they would put some stuff on the table. The owners may say, right now, that doesn't look too good. But let's reconvene next week and let's see what we could do. Because February is eight days from now. And pitchers and catchers would be scheduled to report three weeks from today. So they know the clock isn't their friend if they're going to continue to postpone this to where the owner's going to come out and say, all right, well, let's think about it. Well, no, here's our counterproposal. That's going to be a practice in futility. So we'll wait and see what happens there. But that's pretty much it with the baseball. Uh, One other thing now that I think about it when it comes to baseball, thank goodness that Rob Manfred, the commissioner and the powers that be, shot down the idea of the Rays splitting their season between Tampa and Montreal for the foreseeable future. That would have been an ultimate disaster because the situation in Tampa, we get it. They're playing in an ice over ballpark. We understand not many people come out to their games and they're a competitive team, as we've seen. Made it to a World Series two years ago, won 100 games. Okay, they lost in the divisional round to the Red Sox, but still, a team that's on a come up, they signed their prize prospect on a 1 1 to Franco. And you would think they're going to be a formidable and pretty much a well-balanced and the same team that we saw last year where they're going to be competitive in an AL East. So to have them play the first two months in Tampa and then play three months in Montreal only to come back to Tampa, that would have just been uh, a complete and utter disaster. So they looked at that and said, no, we're not going to do that. You can forget about it. So thank goodness for that. Hopefully, Stu Sternberg, the owner of the Rays and company, will figure out something with their ballpark because I believe the lease is up 
after the 2027 year or maybe before that, but can we build a stadium there once and for all and call it a deal and call it a day? Why can't they do that? And you know it's going to be publicly funded, which who knows what the county of Tampa, I believe that's Hillsborough County, what they have as far as what's in the coffers to build a stadium. Who knows? But you know it's not going to come out of Sternberg's pocket or at least not all of it. So that's what you have there. As far as the Australian Open goes, pretty much as of right now, no Naomi Osaka. She lost in the third round in three sets to Amanda Anisimova a few days ago. Also, Layla Fernandez, she was upset in her first round match. Remember, she went up against uh, Emma Raducanu in the US Open there last year where Raducanu won the women's title. And then Raducanu, although she won her first round match over Sloane Stephens, she lost in the second round of the... Australian Open, so pretty much right now, it's looking like Ash Barty's women's side for her to win, as she's still alive down under as we go into week two, and as far as the men's side goes, your big upset over the week was Alexander Zverev, losing in straight sets to Denis Shapovalov, your big proponents there, or the heavyweights, Rafael Nadal, Daniil Medvedev, and Stefano Tsitsipas, who won a five-set match down 2-1 to Taylor Fritz earlier today. So Tsitsipas is still alive. You still have Medvedev, Nadal, obviously knows Zverev. Of course, we don't have Roger Federer anywhere near the building. And obviously, Novak Djokovic is nowhere near Australia. So I'm going to root for Nadal. This is his tournament to win, you would think. And I'm sure he's going to pull out all the stops to do so because if he does win... He'll have 21 Grand Slams, which he'll overtake the aforementioned Federer and Djokovic all-time as far as men's Grand Slam singles are concerned. So that's something to keep an eye on. But of course, Medvedev is not going to be an easy out. Same for Tsitsipas. I don't know what side of the bracket those guys fall on, but you would think that Nadal is going to do whatever it takes to try to get that 21st victory under his belt with the French, which is his playground. And we all know how great of a clay player he is, the best of all time with an opportunity to possibly push it to 22 if he does secure a title down in Melbourne. So that's what we have with the Australian Open. And then lastly, MMA, they had a bout on Saturday with Francis Ngannou and Cyril Gagne. I didn't see the fight. I wanted to tune into it, but with the Packer-Niner game, and I wanted to see the post-game reaction from Aaron Rodgers, that it just, it wasn't on my radar. I did make a point. To say, well, after the game, I'm going to go ahead and watch this. Not thinking that the Packers are going to lose. And then wanted to hear what Aaron Rodgers had to say. But with that taking place, I had to tune in on that. So I didn't watch the fight. But Ngannou wins. Unanimous. Five rounds, as we all know. Was the unanimous winner. He is, of course, known to be a ferocious power puncher. But you didn't see that throughout the fight. I wonder if it was a thing out of respect to Gagne. Because he was a former sparring partner dating back. Four or five years ago, there wasn't any animosity between the two. I'm not trying to say that he took it lightly on Gagne or that he didn't try to overpower him, but he did out-wrestle him and certainly tried to be more of a tactician when it comes to fighting, grappling, jiu-jitsu, that regard, than just trying to slug it out and knock him out into submission. So that didn't seem to be the case. I did watch the highlights, and that's what I took from what I saw so Nganu is your unified UFC heavyweight champion. We'll see where that leads him down the road. So 
I'm sure the respect factor between Gagne and Ganu was there. That's why you may not have had that type of fight where you were looking to see Ganu in the cage, slug it out, but that wasn't to be the case, so I'm sure it was underwhelming for the UFC fan out there. So that's what we have when it comes to what's happening in the octagon. But with that said, let's wrap it up, people, to my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week goes to Kansas State women's NCAA Division I player, Ayoka Lee, who set the record for all-time scoring in a game with 61 points versus Oklahoma this past week. The former D1 women's record was 60 points and was held by two women, Long Beach State post player Cindy Brown. It was set back in 1987, so I'm sure she's a forward. And then Minnesota guard Rachel Bannum in 2016. And to think, when we look at the women's game and all the players that have come through, whether your name is Tamika Catchings, Candace Parker, I go down the list. I mean, it's forever. All the UConn players, whether your name is Sue Bird, Rebecca Lobo, uh, you name it. We know all the women's collegiate players and how prominent they've been here over the course of time, but it's Ayoka Lee who gets the single game all-time record. Kudos to you, Ayoka Lee. You are my hero of the week. And my zero of the week goes to Kansas City Chief linebacker Willie Gay. As he was arrested Wednesday night in Overland Park, he was charged with misdemeanor criminal property damage. Now, again, it wasn't a big thing at the end of the day. Pretty much the damage was a $225 vacuum cleaner and a cell phone screen protector. I mean, please. So it wasn't the phone itself, it was just a protector. Damage to a wall, whatever. I guess it was because of an argument with the child's mom. So therefore, he got enraged and damaged some property. All right, obviously that's none of my business. But knowing that he has a game this coming week in which he played, he had four tackles, two solo in the game yesterday against the Bills, but he probably could have been able to defuse the situation by just walking out and not being a part of the news and being on a police blotter somewhere in Kansas. So Willie Gay, not a good optic, my guy. Unfortunately, you are my zero of the week. That'll do it. Episode 235 as action-packed, jam-packed, fast-paced as it could possibly be, especially with the NFL segment because I'm sure that's what everybody wanted to hear. And with that said, thank you so much for stopping by to entrust in yours truly to not only share my thoughts, my opinions, my analysis on everything that's happening in sports and in particular with the NFL. I know you could go elsewhere and I'm sure you do go elsewhere, rightfully so. But to come here, to stop by and to show me love, I sincerely and I'm grateful for your participation. And speaking of which, if you could do so, and if you haven't done so, like I said at the top, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Throw me a few stars, write a review. It'll go a long way into increasing the visibility of this podcast so I can have some future guests for you guys and hopefully have a big guest for my fourth anniversary come March. So you want to stay tuned for that. If you want to hit me up on any of my social media accounts, you could do so at the following. On Instagram, J Reels or the J Reels podcast. On Twitter, J Reels one just the number. On Facebook, the J Reels Podcast fan page, or the old-fashioned way at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever you want to send, please do so. I'll be more than happy to follow up. And lastly, if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P is in Paul, A T is in Tom, R E O N is in Nancy. Whatever you want to put forth. I would beyond 
be eternally grateful and thankful for that contribution because what it does, it goes 100% to this endeavor, to the upkeep of the website, to all the equipment as far as this production to make sure that I come through loud, clear, crisp, and concise into your earbuds or to your speakers to deliver everything that's happening in the world of sports because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to talk about, people. As I like to say, it's in the blood, it's in the DNA, it's been a fiber of my being since birth. Because if you haven't heard so over the course of the last hour and 20, 25 minutes, uh, then I don't know, I guess I got to step my game up even higher. But that's all right, because this is what I love to do. I love to get into anything and everything that happens on the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, octagon, boxing ring, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby.